the Giants began the season 0-2, while the Saints were 0-3. Both have only lost once since. This Sunday, they go head-to-head at the Superdome. Touchdown! Coverage begins at noon Eastern on ESPN Radio. You cannot lose games in the NFL and still win. One day I understand. One day, go see the baby be born and come back. You're a Major League Baseball player. Did I not tell you? Yes, you did. Oh, see, don't answer. Right, this are, these are rhetorical questions. Because you know I told you, and you know I'm right. Analytics don't work at all. It's just a crap to some people who were really smart made up to try to get in the game because they had no talent. Now, I don't know what happened, but for me, it's a lack of leadership on Geno Smith's part that he would put himself in arm's way to get sucker punched. Hello and welcome to Hot Takedown, 538's podcast about the week in sports narratives. If it could be about the day in sports narratives and just be about Geno Smith all day long, <laughs> I think we would. We I'm take Chad, it. I'm Chadwick Matlin, an editor at 538. With me in the studio, Kate Fagan, columnist at ESPNW. Hi, Kate. Hi, Chad. Are you sad about... about Auto-tune skip being stripped from the uh, from the theme. I know we need more skip Ellis, not less skip Ellis in that auto. You had that on on uh, your. IPod. I have it on shuffle yeah. on my iPad. Yeah, I'm in my iPod, and it's the only song on the iPod, right? Yeah, it's, it just, it's just on repeat. Yeah. Uh, that's Neil Payne's voice that you hear. Hey, uh, how you doing, Chad? I'm doing great, Neil. Thank you. As a Jets fan, how are you doing? All right, so that's uh, usually I you know tell you what's going to happen on the show, but we can we can just get right into. You're a Mets you know. and Jets fan. Mets Jets. Nets and have I got? Have I told you guys my plan when the Islanders moved to Brooklyn? No, what's your plan? I want them to be renamed the Wets, so I can be Mets, Nets, Jets, Wets. Anyway, you're misunderstanding the phase um, of water that they uh, skate around on. When the blade goes across the ice, it sublimates into wetness. Uh, So let's have a moment of silence for Geno Smith's jaw. Thanks for giving Geno's jaw that respect that it deserved, guys. So Ik and Empoli sucker punched him, according to the coach Todd Bowles. In the locker room, perhaps, or we know over some type of dispute, perhaps over something, I think the quote was like that sixth graders would be arguing about, I think was something that I saw. Neil, as a Jets fan, I rejoiced the moment that I heard this news. (laughs) Am I right or wrong to rejoice? Are the Jets better off without uh, Geno Smith? Tell the hot takes whether they're right or wrong before yeah so well uh yeah you should never rejoice over a a quarterback getting injured because someone who is capable of starting even at the level of geno is is still you know pretty rare in in football but uh, it does bear saying that in his first two years geno smith got off to really one of the worst starts of a quarterback's career since the merger in 1970 and just even to use the most advanced of the advanced stats that we have on hand at at profootballreference.com at least uh, QBR, which is an ESPN creation that's on a scale of 0 to 100, where 50 is average. Gino's first two years, he was about a 36 QBR. And uh, Ryan Fitzpatrick, uh, by comparison, who is the backup and now the starter, presumably, for the Jets, he has been around a 50 to a 55 QBR uh, pretty consistently every year since 2010. In 12 games last year for the Houston Texans, he had a 55 QBR uh, uh, so if you're just judging from the stats, and we know in football that uh, a lot of things can go into these numbers and that they're not you know, to be taken by gospel, uh, as gospel by any means, but uh, the statistical evidence does say that Fitzpatrick is pretty significantly better quarterback at this point than Geno Smith was. So you're saying I should buy the jersey? Yeah. yeah. 
So we haven't even talked about what we're going to talk about on today's show, guys. <laughs> we got so wrapped up in Gino. Uh, we're going to get to the Mighty Blue Jays, who may all of a sudden be the best team in the majors, or maybe they were all along. Neil is going to explain this very strange baseball um, evaluation of, of who's good and who's not. And then we're going to make Kate's dreams come true ever since she was a kid watching the Knicks flame out in the NBA playoffs. She's wow. wanted to do, I know, sorry, I had to get That's that taken. <laughs> She's wanted to do a podcast segment about John Starks. And to celebrate his 50th birthday, we're going to turn on the Way Way Back machine and make sense of his singular talents. So now to baseball, where Neil Payne has written something that tells me I'm supposed to care about the Blue Jays all of a sudden. They've won eight in a row as of this taping, has scored 129 more runs than their opponents, and have enough Canadian swagger for Drake to remind everyone he's been on the bandwagon since 1993. Neil, this week you wrote a piece that said the Blue Jays' breakout is no surprise. Why? So, first of all, I have to object to the Drake reference as a Phillies fan. Just uh, totally uncalled for to reference the Joe Carter home run in his mixtape, his diss track a few weeks ago. But that's kind of beside the point. Uh, So, just talking about the Blue Jays, uh, there was a this kind of played off an article that was written by Victor Mather of the New York Times, uh, where he kind of came to this conclusion that the the underlying metrics, even before the Blue Jays went out at the trade deadline and they picked up Troy Chulowitzki, they picked up uh, David Price, so they added probably as much talent as anyone uh, uh, before July 31st, uh, and they already, before they even made a single move, they already had the American League's best Pythagorean expectation, which is a measure of run differential that's converted into winning percentage form. Let me let me stop you there about the Pythagorean. Kate, I, <laughs> I think know. you also well, were Chad raising and our I hands. Are <laughs> looking at each other across the eyes way were glazing. Here. Yes, and and Pythagorean. I mean, of all the advanced metrics, and I know we we did stat school, so and I pass, and I have the certificate and everything. We <laughs> did it's not. Framed. It's right, in the exactly. studio. You guys missed it. It's, on it's in a floating frame. It's it's beautiful. But the Pythagorean theorem being inserted into baseball language, I just need a quick 20, 30 second um, explanation. Sure. So back in the 1970s, uh, Bill James, who is the father of sabermetrics, he kind of found this relationship between how many runs a team scores and allows and its winning percentage. And he called it because he used an exponent of two, which mm. is what you also use when you're trying to find the hypotenuse, uh, mm. the length of the hypotenuse of a right triangle. Uh, he called it the Pythagorean winning percentage or the Pythagorean okay. formula, I guess, is, is what you would call it. So, okay. he, so what goes into it, if I understand correctly? <laughs> Runs scored, how many runs your offense produces? Runs allowed, how many yeah. runs your your pitcher staff lets up? And, and then you it. get and then you get how good you're supposed to be, right? Because right. so, obviously, if you're scoring more than you're giving up, you should be winning a certain amount of games. If you're winning fewer, then something's out of whack and it should correct itself over the course of a season. Yeah, that's kind of the idea that, uh, especially in in pr- more primitive ages of sabermetrics, the idea was just that deviations f- uh, of your actual winning percentage from your Pythagorean uh, winning percentage were sort of due to luck. They, they tended to regress very strongly to the mean, so a team really couldn't sustain winning a bunch of close games. What it really just means is if you have more Pythagorean wins than real wins, like the Blue Jays did before they made their trade deadline acquisitions, you've been winning a lot of blowouts and you've been losing a lot of close games. And if the inverse is true, then you've been winning a lot of close games and you've been when you lose, you get blown out by big margins. It's almost like a measurement of potential in right. a way. It's a measurement you- of, of actual 
talent value or something. So like a crude instead. way of yeah. being like. So like for example, the Blue Jays had a four ninety five winning percentage. They were a game or two under under five hundred. Given their Pythagorean run run allowed run scored Pythagorean run differential. run differential, thank you. They should have had a, a five eighty eight winning percentage. Significant, yeah. Okay. So like ten whatever that is, fifteen games right. better. Right. Um, okay, so Neil, let's now let you resume your original uh, point that you were making that the Blue Jays had, as maybe I've just said, the Pythagorean of a really good team, and when, at the trade deadline, they got even better. Right. Uh, so it's it, there's kind of uh, multiple things that could be going on for the Blue Jays, and uh, one of them is they just added a bunch of talent, but they could also be regressing to the mean of how good their fundamentals, uh, to use a political term, Re- Regressing w- to the mean better. Of good mean, right. Regressing okay. so in a good progressing way. to the mean yeah. in a way. Progressing I mean, I to suppose, the mean. We always yeah. think of yeah. it as like getting worse because of the word regress, but sometimes your mean is better than and you're actually performing exactly, so you're progressing exactly. to the Exactly. Uh, and so the idea was that you know they would eventually turn things around and that their actual winning percentage would match up to their predicted Pythagorean winning percentage and th- that appears to be what has happened in in the Blue Jays recent run. Uh, so far, but uh, it's it. You have to be careful not to give too much credit to that because again, eight game winning streaks are probably more the product of luck than anything. Uh, a team like the Phillies has been on a tear recently when they're terrible. Uh, so it's kind of you expect it to reverse, but in the amount of time that's passed since the trade deadline, it's just such a small sample that it's impossible to say how much is the reverse uh, the. Re- progression to the mean how much is the new talent they added and how much is just plain old luck and the new talent they added haven't added a ton of talent uh, of of uh, uh, impact to the team Troy Tulowitzki well they haven't is, had the chance yet. right exactly so but also on the on the Phillies point Jeff Sullivan at Fangrass wrote an interesting piece about the Phillies being good all of a sudden they have mm-hmm. the best record in, in the majors uh, since the the all-star break and saying baseball is just weird right. like weird stuff happens in baseball <laughs> And But the difference for the Blue Jays, as I look at it from the outside, is that the fundamentals that underlie the weirdness suggest that the weirdness is probably expected. That yeah. it's actually – there's some truth in the weirdness. Whereas for the Phillies, the weirdness is, is probably an aberration. Okay, but I have a question on a team's pie winning percentage. We should be able to analyze over the last few years – a team's pie winning percentage, and then at the end of the year, their actual winning percentage. How much of a deviation has there been in the past between those two? Do we see teams that that have a really high pie winning percentage and then perform poorly? So typically, uh, the predicted winning percentage from Pythagorean would mat- be within like plus or minus four games or five games of how many you actually won. Uh, the majority of teams are going to be really close to just being dead on uh, according to the prediction because there is that relationship between how many runs you score and how many you allow and winning baseball games. So, and, and to maybe answer your question in another way, Kate, as a whole, as a macro, the, the, the relationship between... Uh, run differ- differential and winning stands for the whole league. Individual teams can deviate from it, if right. that makes sense. Right. And so one thing I've been puzzling over is what this means for the Blue Jays long term. And Stephen A. Smith has also been pu- puzzling over it. Here he is on first take. They're not, accustomed, the Jays, they're not accustomed to winning in baseball. They're not yeah. accustomed to winning in baseball. This is foreign territory for oh. them. They're impressive with the bats. I get that. But those bats are going to cool down. Mm-hmm. Those bats are going to cool down, and then we will see. Don't worry about it. Man, bag of shells. I, I think so the bats right. that have... 
Do you get why it's foreign territory? Because they're foreign. Yeah. So I see what I, he did there. I think you know what is also foreign: talking baseball on first take. <laughs> that never happens. So I think, based on what we've just said, the bats cooling down is antithetical to what we just said. Right? That actually. Their 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 run differential suggests that they're going to continue being this. Yeah, good. it suggests that they haven't been that hot, right? They scored and a that, lot of runs. Yeah, that, that they have. When I say hot, I mean actually winning games. Right. Because it seems like Stephen A. is saying that the Blue Jays are going to start losing games because they've been on a tear, but right. they're going to cool it's down. Streaky, generally yeah. speaking, yeah. but they, they seems like the numbers are saying they actually need to heat up to reach their true potential. Yeah, the weird thing about that quote is that uh, he was breaking it down not really at the wins and losses level, but breaking it down at the runs scored and runs allowed level, which is what the Blue Jays have been good at all year <laughs> long. Not not just what they've been recently good at. What they've been recently good at is turning that into wins and eking out those close games or just perhaps blowing people away. So can I ask a power baseball nerd question to Neil real quick? Just allow me this. Power I'm just away. Gonna step out okay. of the room for this. So the you also wrote a piece recently, Neil, about this maybe being the year where projections got things wrong in mm-hmm. baseball, along with Rob Arthur, our baseball columnist. And the gist of that was that there's more luck in baseball than ever, mm-hmm. and that that we just can't predict things like we used to. Does that have any bearing on what we're talking about with the Blue Jays? That that our our tools for for predicting are getting more dull or am i interpreting this all wrong no no i think you are so one of the gist of the article was that basically teams are becoming more compressed in terms of not only their talent so the predictions before the season but their actual records are also so parity is at least in the short term i can't say what compressed is in there all, all of them are sitting between 80 wins and, and 95 wins or something. yeah or, or yeah they're very Tightly hugging the 81 win 500 mark, at least relative to other, yeah, very, very strong embrace relative to in the past, especially when we started kind of digging up the stats, Nate Silver and I, when we were kind of mining for this data uh, in 1996. So I don't know if it's a result of some of the new collective bargaining things that have gone on, the the overhauls to the way you can sign foreign prospects, certain things with the draft. I don't know what's causing it, but teams are sort of more ordinary than ever. Uh, and, and as a consequence of that, really luck uh, plays more of a role. When talent is less differentiated and everyone is sort of close to 81 wins of talent or, or closer than they'd been in the past, then uh, in baseball, even 162 games worth of pl- of a season is not enough to really distinguish between teams as much as we would like. So the Blue Jays, for instance, were projected to be a solid team before the season. And as they really built through the season, and they, their projections at a place like Fangraphs uh, looked even stronger because they had this excellent uh, run differential. And even the, the things underlying that run differential, like their, their hits and their walks and their home runs and everything like that, were really strong. Uh, so all signs would have pointed to them playing better. And I think, like you said, Chad, that's the difference with them versus maybe another team. For instance, your New York Mets that have also been pretty hot of late is that really nothing about the Mets indicated that they would be a great team going forward uh, from the trade deadline onward uh, and go on one of these tears. Uh, pretty much everything about the Blue Jays said that they would, but there is that factor of luck being more of a taking more of a role than ever. So we're being sort of our knowledge of teams is clouded before the season, during the season, uh, and and it's even more clouded by luck once you get into these smaller sample sizes. So a weird sport is only going to get weirder. It's, Baseball is it's weird. It's just going to get weirder. Good. All right, let's leave it there and move on. Kate, 
Are you ready to talk about John Starks? I'm always ready to talk about John Starks. So a little behind the curtain sneak peek for listeners and, mm-hmm. and video watchers about how Hot Takedown gets made. It's been a slow, slow time on the sports calendar, I would say. Uh, and as we were scrounging for a segment this week, Kate, in our little group chat, lightheartedly mentioned that it was John Stark's 50th birthday this week. And before she even asked, can we do an analysis of his numbers, Neil had already typed yes in yes. all caps and with, exclamation points. Yes, with the four exclamation sure. points, like yeah. the enthusiasm radiating through our Slack chat. Historical stats. Gets me <laughs> Neil is always up for a trip down memory lane. So... Before we go deep and, and like really deep into John Stark's <laughs> analytical profile, Kate, why is Stark such a legend for you? Well, he's just the perfect player for my era and when I was growing up. And a lot of things that you end up falling in love with are more products of where you are in your life. You know, I feel that way about books a lot of times. And when, you were a Knicks fan. Yeah. And so I grew so I grew up in outside of Albany, New York in the 90s. So 90s Knicks, I mean, we still, Knicks fans still point to that as if we won eight championships during the 90s. You know? <laughs> oh, what like, an era. Yeah, that's what right. The era. 90s era. And like, meanwhile, we didn't win a title. But so I was I was growing up and playing AAU ball at the same time, like the peak of his career, at least what I remember as the peak of his career, like 91, 92, 93. And I'm a shooting guard. He was a shooting guard. In fact, at the, the first AAU practice I ever went to, I wore a Starks jersey. And because they didn't know my name yet, they started calling me Starks. So I re- I've recognized more in retrospect um, that his place, like historically, is not as high as I viewed it as as a child and growing up as such a huge fan of his. But there was just something about I got heart like John Starks, which really came through. And I think he was more beloved in New York than a lot of players who you might say statistically were better than he was. Right. So he's the sixth man of the year one year. He was an all-star in one year. He could shoot a three. He could play a little bit of defense. He made the all-defensive team uh, on the second team one year. But he never quite ascended to greatness as far as, you know, he, he was, he, I don't know if you would call him a great player. He was certainly great to root for, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I think if I'm being fair, he, he's, he wasn't a great player. But relative to where he came from, like bagging groceries after playing at Oklahoma State and not being in the league and... Um, and coming from that, rather than being like a top five draft pick, you'd have to say that he overachieved, quote unquote, whatever that means. So here's actually how an MSG documentary on Starks put it. Okay. You have a guy who who had been bagging groceries years before starting and playing huge roles for this team, getting into the finals, you know, and being an all-star, winning sixth man of the year. He really went from nothing to something. Kate, did you write that script? No, right? <laughs> that, that I know, right? I haven't even seen that, and yet I sound like I wrote that copy. So, Neil, yeah. that was that was some heavy narrative stuff. I mean, this is you know that's that's about John Starks the man, and about you know and about about his journey and about his overcoming the the nobody to be a somebody. Tell me about John Starks the number. Yeah, so we crunched the stats on John Starks and uh, his career, and we kind of compared him to the league averages of the seasons that he played. Uh, and and we had we rated him in categories that range from true shooting percentage, so that's like efficiency, scoring, including your shooting from the floor and from the line, uh, rebound rate, assist rate, steal rate, uh, turnover rate, block percentage, and usage rate, and all then, the good modern stuff. Basically, yeah, the, basically what you can find at Basketball Reference when you go down to his advanced uh, tab, and we found that uh, Starks. 
Uh, if you, uh, we've talked about the player efficiency rating before, and his player efficiency rating is surprisingly, to me at least, uh, was below the average uh, rate of 15. John. Uh, so, so I was kind of confused by that because he has this reputation as being you know, a, a high-scoring player, which you would think that PER would, would reward. But then when you start looking at the other metrics, which are sort of uh, ba- you know, even more modern than PER, and they're based off of like plus-minus, or at least trying to emulate plus-minus, it, it didn't really exist for Starks' career for the vast majority of his career and he shows up better in that he shows up as an uh, as a above average player and during his best seasons a pretty good player in fact uh and and especially on offense uh his defensive numbers it's interesting uh, you mentioned that he had been named to all defense second team one of the years uh but really his defensive numbers were not that great but keep in mind that we're just estimating we're trying to look at things that from that era that we know now, uh, when looking at plus-minus, correlate to playing good defense and making your defense better when you're on the floor. But we don't actually have how his team did with or without him from that era. Uh, so all we have is like steals, which he was really good at. And our colleague Ben Morris has done some work on like steals are a really predictive stat. They're, they tell you a lot about who's good and who's bad, uh, and and even on offense a little bit, uh, surprisingly. So Starks was good at stealing the ball. Uh, he was good at passing. His assist rate is really high, which uh, might be surprising when you think about him also as being, you know, kind of a gunner uh, and, and, and a shooter more than anything else, and certainly had a high usage rate. That's one of the other stats that he was best at. Uh, and, and he didn't turn the ball over uh, as much as you would expect. His turnover rate was low, which is especially impressive considering how he shouldered a lot of the Knicks offense. So those were the four categories where he excelled. Assist rate, steal percentage turnover percentage and usage rate yeah well i love when this happens because the stats actually do name what i remember feeling when i was watching him in the 90s like i think neil you also said um before that his true shooting percentage wasn't fabulous either right i say not fabulous that could be the most homer (laughs) thing ever not it wasn't good (laughs) it was bad bears mentioning that in our uh our slack channel kate's avatar is john stark's picture you're right we should have disclosed that at the top of the so uh you're you're you are being uh fair to him in this in light of that i think Uh, but i think what i remember feeling when i watched him was yes i mean i called it streaky you know which obviously isn't going to translate to a great shooting percentage when you're not very not consistent and you've got certain games where you're not going to for 18 um but i do also remember that his his passing from the wing was really sharp and and you you mentioned like maybe his assists being higher than you would expect and a lot of that was because he was one of the guys who mainly fed the ball to ewing on the wing and his entry passes were actually really good if you can be quote-unquote good at such a thing um he was good at that he was good at um wrapping the ball around a defender in a lot of tricky ways and steals these are all the things that i remember him being good at that and then overshadowed like when his shot was on it was just like pure John Starks right there. Right, and he was a ball handler, really the primary ball handler for those teams. Uh, they, they like to pair him with like these hard-nosed defensive guards mm-hmm. uh, and, and then try to have him, you know, kind of be in control of the offense and be the trigger man when they're at the other end of the floor. So it makes sense that, you know, when you're in charge of the passing and in charge of the decision-making from the perimeter, you're going to pick up assists, and he was a good passer. Yeah. Okay, let's, let's pause it right there because – while it's one thing to hear us evaluate John Stark's career, it would be great if we could talk to you know a Stark's expert. Okay. And lo and behold, on the line, John Stark's himself. Hi, John. Welcome to Hot Takedown. Uh, thank you. Thank you. So, 
John, we've been talking a bit about your playing days, and I wonder, you know, who did you feel like was a player most like you while you were playing, as far as the style of of play that you were doing, um, and who, when you look at the game today, do you feel like is most like you as you're watching the players? Uh, it was a little different style of basketball, I think, back then. Uh, you know, uh, you know, most people would say they are uh, Smith. Uh, kind of reminds me of myself a little bit because he was like a shooter with no conscience, and that's the way I was. <laughs> uh, defensively, you know, I was, you know, that's what I pride myself on. I pride myself on uh, being one of the best defensive guards in the league uh, during that time, and I had to be because I was a lot shorter than most uh, guards at my position, and I uh, probably got outweighed probably by 20 pounds or so. Uh, at my position, uh, guys that today that kind of reminds me of myself, I, I can't really say. I, I don't. It was a totally different style of game than it is now. You know, as you know, uh, the league is more defensive oriented back then, a little bit more physical back then. Uh, this is a little bit more wide open, which is a beautiful thing to see because these guys are so talented. Uh, but I can't really say what particular player. Hey, John. Uh, so, Neil Payne uh, speaking here. Uh, I had run the numbers, and it's amazing that you actually said J.R. Smith was one of the players you felt gets compared to you, because when we looked at some of the things, some of the advanced numbers that you put up in your career and then compared them to players from across basketball history, J.R. Smith actually shows up as one of the most comparable players to you uh, from uh, from certainly current players, but even if you look at all players. Yeah, J.R., you know... Uh I love his tenaciousness and, and his approach and not get down on himself as, as much uh, when he do miss a shot. You know, as a uh, shooter, you know, you can't have no conscience out there on the court. You know, uh, you have to have the freedom mm-hmm. to go out there and just let it fly. Whether you miss 10 in a row, you just have to feel like that next one is going to fall and get you going. And I was obviously known as a streaky shooter, so... Uh, you know, he's, he kind of reminds me of myself. Hey, John. Well, first of all, happy 50th. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> what did what'd you do yesterday? Golf and dinner with the family. Okay. <laughs> all right. That sounds good. So back when you were playing for Pat Riley and then and Jeff Van Gundy, what kind of advanced stats did you guys have? Or were there any? I guess what would Pat or Jeff in the locker room, if they would talk about numbers, were they using any sort of like advanced stats? Uh, well, they use numbers, you know, to tell you how you, what your sufficiency, uh, efficiency is out there on the court. Uh, just kind of numbers is really just, you know, you want to put that on players' mind and let them know where they – where they at in the game and how they playing at that particular time. And if you're playing well, you never see see the numbers. If you're playing bad, you see the numbers. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, I think that's just a way to motivate guys and, and kind of keep guys on their toes. You know, you talked about, you know, the uh, three-point percentages, your rebounding percentages, your free throw percentages, field goal percentages, you know, all those little things. and. You know, for most players, you don't really think about those things. But, you know, when a coach is putting it in your face, you you pay some attention to it. That means that (laughs) you have to go out there and and shoot more, uh, you know, get more shots up uh, doing practice. 
interesting uh, that you talked about three-point shooting, John, because uh, we crunched some numbers on your rate of three-point attempts as a percentage of all of your shots, and uh, you were in the same group as guys like Dennis Scott, George McLeod, Vernon Maxwell, and you guys were really like on that first wave of guys that were taking a lot of threes, especially even by like modern standards, uh, and, and back in those days, three-point shots weren't really as common. Was that something that just was your role in the offense, or did you kind of see yourself at the time as what ended up being sort of uh, on the forefront of a revolution of three-point shooting that you see in the game today. Yeah, I think all those guys that you named had low post players. <laughs> mm-hmm. Dennis Scott played with Shaq, obviously. Uh, uh, Burning played with uh, Kim, and I played with Patrick. And so the game mm-hmm. was more inside out. Instead of now, it's more outside than inside later on. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, we kind of just had to more of a spot-up shooters that the guys that you named off uh, during those times uh, because of the way the game was played uh, during those times. You know, most teams had low-post players. You don't see that as much now. Uh, it's right. more of an outside, you know, ball movement type of game now. And so that's going to lend itself, especially now, to a lot of, you know, three-point sh- uh, shots going on. Uh, you know, so I had to kind of wait out there to patch it, uh, pass the ball back out. And, uh, and so my job was to, you know, knock down shots from the outside. So, and Riley was big on spacing, you know, staying behind the three point shot, three point line. And, uh, and so that's kind of where, what my role was, uh, during that time. That's why you saw, in, uh, my numbers of three point shots was, you know, very high during those times when I got with New York. John, you've been around the game for a long time. Do you feel like the game, you know, it has these cycles of, of, of schemes that go through it, and as you said, now it's more of a of a spread-the-floor kind of moment. Do you think the outside-in game is due for a comeback? Can it beat the spread-the-floor and, and, and whip it around? Um, and we just need the right players to be good enough to be able to do it? Yeah, well, you're starting to see some big men coming into the game now uh, and that are low-post players like Towns, uh, which he can do both but he really likes to play down low. Uh, Okafor, you know, guys like that, uh, the big guys that's coming in is really pretty skillful down down low. And, you know, it's going to take some time to get there, you know, because uh, the way the game has evolved over time, and I think, you know, as you see those guys starting to be successful with that low post game, you're going to start seeing more men who, who wants to play down low. And so, uh, you know, it's, everything comes in cycles. And I think that's that's what you're going to say. John, how do you think you would play in today's NBA? How do you think your game might be different? Oh, I'd love to play it in today's game, you know, <laughs> where you can't put your hands on guys. <laughs> you know, <laughs> as, for me as a guard, you know, you, that was the number one thing. You know, you got the freedom to go out there and just play play the game. You know, back when, obviously, when we, during the time we played, you can, you know, put your forearm, you can hand check, you can do all that. Uh, but now that you can't put your hands on a lot of these guys, which they are very talented, especially with the ball in their hand, it makes it very difficult to guard them. Yeah, and so, John... Famously, you had for Knicks fans. You you had um, the game in which you went. What was it? Three three for twenty one. Am I allowed to? Am I allowed I to know, ask you about I'm this? I'm nervous. Um, two for eighteen. 
two Excuse me, two for eighteen. And so, and so, you know, while that was happening, we always we talk a lot here about numbers from a really zoomed out place where we only look at big data sets and we don't know what it's like on the floor. But you know, we say, oh, you know, a player can get streaky, and but his his true shooting percentage is still you know four uh, four hundred or something like that. Yeah. But when you're in the midst of a slump like that. What are you feeling on the court? Do you think about what your actual, you know, real talent is like and you're hoping that it eventually comes back to you? Or do you think, oh, man, I can't hit a shot tonight. I better keep passing it. No, no. Uh, because <laughs> you, you rely on, you know, what you have done in the past. And that's just been my M.O. You know, it just takes one shot just to get me going. I can roll off six, seven shots in a row. You know, or I can miss eight, nine, ten in a row. Uh, but you always kind of like, rely on what you have done in the past and, and and knowing that, you know, if you're confident in your ability that you're going to get going, you know, during that night, it seems it didn't get going for me, unfortunately. All right, John, thanks a lot for joining Hot Takedown and happy birthday again. Okay, uh, thank and you. it was great having you on. Thank you. Thanks, John. You guys thank you. take care of that. Bye now. And that was John Starks, uh, who's in the who does alumni relations and fan devel- development for the Knicks, and he's been working for them for 11 years. So guys, what do you think? Well, I thought he made a couple of really interesting points, and one at the end there about talking about whether he would want to play in the league now, and then he mentioned the officiating and how certain rules have changed. And, and he's right about the way guards were, you know, you could you could use the forearm, you could block paths more. Like, there was more leeway defensively to be more physical. And it's hard now when you take that from a stat perspective to say, okay, and, and now I sound like I'm defending John, but to say, oh, well, like, his true shooting percentage was this or his efficiency rate was this, and how you incorporate the way the game was refereed well, at that time. Well, but doesn't that come up and we can see the eras and you can see that per- shooting percentages would go up, let's say, because of hand check rules or something oh, like that? Well, you can compare players to the true shooting percentage of the league in the uh, in the seasons in which he played. But, I mean, Kate makes a great point that you don't know how that would change if you had a time machine and you put uh, John Starks down in 2015. But I think it was really interesting that he talked about, you know, himself being someone that relied on kickouts and, and sh- to get shots, but that he felt like if he played today's game, he could do a lot more driving. He could, uh, you know, be one of those dynamic guards. That's kind of borne out by the stats. If you look at, like I mentioned, Dennis Scott and Vernon Maxwell and even guys like Dan Marley, guys that were in his class of three-point shooters in terms of they were guys that were taking threes on the very forefront of everyone starting to take threes at at that time. It really hadn't taken hold yet. But uh, it's worth mentioning that Starks had a higher usage rate and a higher assist rate than any of those other guys that were in the same uh, class of him as a shooter. So it really makes sense uh, if if you were to do a a thought experiment and say he might be one of the guys that would be capable of, in today's game, using the spread uh, offense and and being able to attack the basket as as a consequence of it. Because he, he obviously played with Ewing, and Riley's system was about spacing and making sure that Starks was spreading the floor and staying behind the three-point line once they dumped it back down. So he was reliant on Ewing because of the system that was set up. But remembering back how he played, I think if you put him in more of a four-guard, one-in, four, I'm sorry, four-out, one-in system, could he thrive in that as well? And would we have seen more you know, drip, drives to the basket? I think so. Yeah. 
And the other thing I wanted to talk about of his response that I thought was really interesting was the when he talked about the infamous 0 for 11 from 3, 2 for 18 game, that uh, he needed to rely on things that he had done in the past and just believe that things would change. That's a very statistical mindset that you have a much bigger sample in the past of games in which Starks was hitting a lot of threes and, and was like a true 30-something percent three-point shooter, even though he was 0 for 11 in that particular game and that stretch of 11 attempts, that is statistical thinking of, of using the larger sample to sort of explain what you're going to do in the future. So let's leave it there. Kate, did no. that satisfy a lifelong yearning of yours? You feel <laughs> yeah, like- I actually met John about six weeks ago because he does a lot of work with the John Starks Foundation. Um, and so this is the, but this is the first time I've podcasted with him. So check. Good. Of course, when I was 12, I was like, podcasting. I want to podcast right. with John someday. Bucket list. That's right. Okay, that's John Starks. He's a special guest, but we have another special guest who stops stops by every week. The most special. It's Allison McCann. Hi, Allison. Hey, guys. Allison brings us our significant digit, a telling number from the world of sports. And Allison, you've combed the web. You've you've you know you've you've traversed the globe. You finished the internet. What have you brought us this week? I know, and I was in the depths of this late summer sports drought. Um, the doldrums. Yeah. But this weekend was the uh, opening weekend of the Premier League, so significant digit uh, comes from that. It is 5.04, which is the worst player rating for all 276 Premier League players uh, after the opening weekend. These ratings are from whoscored.com, and they're based on a 1 to 10 scale, uh, with the average this weekend being a 6.8. And they're pretty cool, too. They use in-game opt-to-data for every pass and shot and assist and kind of uh, classified as positive or negative and um, weight these in relation to the field. So uh, Mr. Check uh, was our was our worst performer of the Do weekend. We know, really? Is, is, oh, was he that bad? Was yeah, he, he let in two real howl. Yeah, usually I, know, I hate Peter to blame yeah. uh, keepers, but there was one. He just came out diving off a free kick and completely missed the ball, completely missed all players, was just nowhere near anything happening. And... It's sort of interesting because he comes to Arsenal this season after 10 years on Chelsea. And, he was supposed I mean, to be a big free agent. Yeah, right? he right. was like... How were his who scored numbers there? <laughs> <laughs> that's, uh, that's for next week. Um, <laughs> yeah, and he is a phenomenal keeper, but just was atrocious this weekend and is rightfully in last place. Who scored is sort of the Ken Palm of soccer, if you'll remember back to our college basketball days. Of course. Ken Palm the was our patron source. saint of college basketball, and who scored is by far my favorite soccer analytics site. Um, and so what, we, we just think he's going to get better and be his normal self after this like what you have to assume he's gonna it's a small sample he's gonna size progress everybody yeah. yeah you got one right. Look at, yeah i love this talk <laughs> i'm defending peter check here yeah it's just nice to be like thinking about the dudes in the arsenal office who were like let's get rid of <laughs> we him. had this huge signing and then you were like weird he was he's the worst, the worst player in the epl uh, did you mention how far he was from the mean um yeah he was almost three standard deviations ooh, away that's not good that's yeah. not good but that's again, from the every player game. who played that, that weekend, yeah. <laughs> uh, I think he'll I think he'll we rebound. owe it to him in a few weeks to bring you back for a sig dig and when he's elevated Chart it. his improvement. I mean, we got to have some follow-up We'll have here. him on the show. Yeah, First Starks, the then check. All right, Allison, thanks for the significant digit as ever. Thanks for having me. And next week, we're going to have a big EPL season preview type Blow of thing. Out. So hot takedown listeners, stay tuned for Lots that. Lots of who scored. <laughs> Lots of who scored. All right, so that'll do it for this week's show. Thanks, as ever, to Kate Fagan. Thanks, Kate. Thanks, Chad. Neil Payne. 
You were you're pretty good too today, actually. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah. You did good. It means a lot. Uh, our podcast producer is Jody Avergan. Our video producer is Ryan Mantel. We get production help from Jordan Shulkin. Our intern is Asta Chaturvedi. It's Asta's last, last week, week, guys. Friday's and she's, your last day. I know, and she's out recording another thing right now. She's we can't even toast us. her on the show. Asta, you've been an incredible help. Uh, I don't know quite what we're going to do without you, actually. Uh, you can email us at contact at 538.com. We'd love to hear what you think. And should we keep... Chris Carter in the theme song, or should Autotune Skip Bayless come back? Kate, I think I know your vote. You danced to Skip every. Shatters the mold. Uh, you can find us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Downcast, all sorts of other podcasting apps. We're on iTunes. You can subscribe at iTunes.com/slash five thirty eight. While you're there, be sure to review and/or rate the show. It helps others discover the program. Our theme song is by Mystery Mansion. I'm Chadwick Matlin. I'll talk to you next time.